Actually, it was uh, Chana, the chariot driver, that was responsible for Siddhartha's um, heart-changing moment on the path to be becoming awakened. So as the legend goes, Siddhartha was raised in a very protective and luxurious environment of a palace once it had been predicted as after his birth that he would either become like a great leader, king, or he'd become uh, a renunciate and the Buddha. And uh, his, his father preferred that he take over like the family business of being uh, you know a prince and then a king because his mother had had died in childbirth and probably had you know attachment issues <laughs> <laughs> but um but all that luxury and pleasure couldn't contain a deep feeling of inquiry in the Buddha. So one day he said to Chana, Chana, harness the chariot and let's go beyond the palace grounds, check things out. And so they went out and it was as if Siddhartha, Siddhartha had never seen before things that he saw. And this is from a discourse called the Divine Messengers, the Four Divine Messengers. So the first was seeing a very old person, and Siddhartha asked Chana, what's that? And Chana answered, well, that's a really old person. And Siddhartha said, well, does that ha will that happen to me and you? And Chana said, yes, it'll happen both to both of us and to everyone else. Everyone who's born gets old. And then Siddhartha no longer felt like having fun beyond the palace grounds. He said, enough then, back to the palace. So he went back and he felt grief and depression and pondered that. But later on his spirits rose again and he said, Chana, harness the chariot. So they went off again beyond the palace grounds. And again, Siddhartha saw something <clears throat> as if he had never seen before. He said, what's that? And Chana said, that's a sick person. And Siddhartha said, what's a sick person? And Chana answered, well, someone you know, afflicted with discomfort, illness and pain in the body. Is that going to happen to me? And Chana said, to both of us and to everyone else. Enough then, let's go back to the palace. And again, he went back and brooded over that for some time. Uh, and after a while, again, his spirits rose, his curiosity, his desire, his inquiry. Harness the chariot. Ch 
Chana, and again they go beyond the palace grounds. And this time, Siddhartha said, well, what's that? Because he sees some people carrying a stretcher. Chana said, that's a corpse. What's a, cor- what's a corpse, asked Siddhartha. Well, it's a dead person. And what is a dead person? As if he had never experienced that before. He said, the life has gone out of them. As if you and I could no longer see or hear or speak. It's finished for them. They're on the way to the charnel ground. Enough. Back to the palace. And this time he spent a long time in grief and depression and thinking about these things and then trying to forget or integrate or understand bewilderment. But then one day something overcame him and he saw Chana harness the chariot. And today let's let's go outside. Let's go way outside. So they went far that day. And they came across a person with his head shaved and wearing yellow robes. And Siddhartha asked Chana, well, what's that or who is that? Well, that's one who's chosen to go outside of the way of the world and the ways of the world and find what is beyond life and death, a happiness that doesn't depend on birth and death and what's between that. Really, said Siddhartha, and he got off the chariot and went up himself to the monk and said, why have you shaven your head and why do you wear these robes? Is it, is it true that you're seeking something beyond life and death? a peace and a happiness that doesn't depend on the senses. Yes, it is true, said the monk. Oh, said Siddhartha. And then he knew what he had to do. And soon after, they went out, this time not on the chariot, they went out on horses. And near a river, Siddhartha took out his sword and cut his long hair and shaved his beard and then went off on his own quest. That later ended in him becoming awakened, the meaning of Buddha, awakened one. It's not known how exactly, there's no story that has been found yet how and when Chana became a monk, but he did. He did later become a monk himself. And um, he was quite attached to his earlier status of being the chariot driver and his connection with Siddhartha before he became the Buddha. So he was the cause of why many of the the rules (laughs) were made because he was, he caused a lot of uh, difficulties that called for the Buddha making rules. In fact, what's known as the discipline, you know, the, the rules of the order for being uh, a monk, a bhikkhu or a bhikkhuni at that time, was when there were no rules in the beginning. But whenever there was something that caused offense or harm to lay people or 
the order of nuns and monks, then that became that became the time to look at the issue, you know, and uh, and decide what to do about it. So, like one of the earlier periods of time where China was a troublemaker, he was kind of arrogant and disrespectful of the other monks, and the monks would try and point out his his behavior, and China would retort saying, who do you think you are, you know? You come together, it's like a river picking up scum and rubble and come together as a gang, and that should be I who tell you what to do. <laughs> and and so the monks would be offended and the Buddha would be called, uh, and it would be determined that that was disrespectful behavior and that, you know, uh, someone wearing robes should should carry themselves with a certain deportment so that they could relax. And how else are they going to discover the nature of their heart and their mind? And so that's how various rules were established. So one of the first ones was when confronted with his misconduct or misbehavior, Chana was evasive. You know, he didn't deny anything. He just changed the subject. <laughs> he just talk about something else. Uh, and so there was actually there was a rule made about not being evasive <laughs> when confronted about your behavior. You know, and later on, when he was rude to monks, again they had to call the Buddha because he was disrespectful of the the group of elders. And it was determined that he was, he was, you know, being vexatious to the other monks. So there was there's a rule about you can't be vexatious. <laughs> there's more, but I'll, I'll tell you that later. I think it's helpful to understand our our practices as various. Uh, simultaneous lines of development so that metta and the other divine abodes are about drawing out these inherent qualities to our nature and they have certain transformative qualities. So metta, for example, has the nature to re-establish our sense of connection. First within ourselves, a mind, body, sense, intuition, connection. And then with through the vehicle of our senses and sensitivity with all life around us, other beings and just the whole surround, uh, to re-establish that oneness, uh, interrelate uh, the restoration of that sense of interrelatedness of all things. And that just gets more and more profound. And because it's reestablishing those connections, it's going to lift up where there's disconnection, disengagement, and dissociation. So, and then back to that in a moment, the other lines of development are, you know, we're using this metta element within us as a focal point for 
the restoration of the peaceful mind. We call it samadhi, the native stillness of mind. When there's no disturbance, the mind is still, just like when there's no wind, the, the ocean out here is, is like a sheet glass. It's so smooth and silky, it reflects everything perfectly. Well, that's the nature of the mind when it's unburdened with distraction and disturbance and hindrances. So that's the line of development. When we put ourselves in the way of these Dhamma winds that re-establish or restore this, the natural stillness of the mind, or Upandita would call it free-flow natural mind. And the third line of development that happens all together, they're interwoven, is deep, intuitive understanding. It is the wisdom that understands metta and makes it so pure and selfless and uh, causes it to grow greater, restore itself more. And the wisdom that understands the that original samadhi mind, the stillness mind, or the flowing stillness mind, as I often refer to it, because it's not a stillness that's static and immovable. Rather, it's very fluid and responsive to life. We're doing all three of these lines of development, whether we're aware of it or not, because we're, we're cultivating metta and the other divine abodes um, in this container of understanding. You know, we keep bringing the wisdom of mindfulness to bear on what's happening and what's going on. Like to understand the obstructions and obstacles. So we see, for example, when we're um, when we're resisting experiences, where, where how we use our intellect, our our indifference, our fantasy. We use any number of of unskillful skills we've picked up along the way not to feel what's happening. You know, not to feel what's real. So, anger and happiness and hatred and love, they're very real. They have very visceral felt sense in the body and in the emotional body, in the psychological body. It's very rare to, to feel them as they really are. We we use our intellect, we use our indifference, we use our dissociative powers, we use thoughts about the fear or the excitement or the joy or the indifference, not to feel them, not to have a feeling sense where understanding can know them as they really are. We need to understand that, and we've been talking about there's reasons why we learn to numb out from experience, or to feel dissociated and indifferent, to distance our heart and our bodies and our senses uh, f- from what might be overwhelming intrusion, you know, manipulative kinds of love and control and anger, and even really happy states, because sometimes our joy was, was uh, judged. You know, or we were punished 
for feeling happiness and joy by friends or family or culture or teachers, whatever. So we learn not even to allow for our joy. In essence, what, what gets hidden or, or lost in our depth is, is our goodness. Is that deep, inherent nature of goodness that's behind everything. That's what's left when all the resistance and all the fear and all the attachment and all the delusion fall away. There's just this pure heart. Goodness in its manifestation of unconditional love, our presence of care, compassion, our empathetic joy, wisdom, these are all aspects. Uh, and it's the first thing that we start to push away when we feel um, invalidated in some way. Years ago, I, w- I was living in Sri Lanka uh, in the 70s with, uh, with um, our daughter Chandra, who at that time, she was two and a half. And uh, we were living with friends on the edge of a forest in the hill country in Kandy. That's where I, I recently returned to the place where we lived. And one day, she came running from the uh, edge of the forest where she had been playing into the house where we were living and said, Daddy, Daddy, there's a mad elephant running in the forest. And at two and a half, I thought she was imagining a plane. So I said, oh, wow, Chandra, you know, that's great. Because we had just seen elephants down at the Candy Temple of the Tooth and plenty of elephants all around. But just about at that time, I heard all this loud commotion and crashing sound. And we went, I went to the back of the house, which is on the edge of the forest, and I saw all these people running you know, in a crazy kind of way. And then I saw this elephant. And indeed, it was angry. You know, it was just rushing down out of the forest road toward the main road down into Candy. And it was dragging its chain, you know, that it had on its hind leg. And, and, the, and the men who were workers at a construction site that, where this elephant was working were grabbing the chain, chain, and they were trying to wrap it around huge trees, like huge jackfruit trees, and it would just the elephant would just rip it right down, just like like it was grass. And it was only when it was right at the edge of the forest road, near the road to the main candy town, that the the mahout, the person who grows up with the elephant and knows it best, it's like its best friend finally reaches it from behind the crowd, you know, and, 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 the, and the elephant recognizes the voice of the mahout and the, and the words of the mahout that tries to soothe it and calm it, uh, and just in time is able to do that. At the very last minute, just right below where we were living. And what had happened is this, that... Uh, the elephant belonged to the temple, and, and when it wasn't doing ceremonious 
things at the temple because you know, elephants are considered sacred in, in the Buddhist um, tradition. It would be hired out to do work, like it was building some um, resort in the back, in the, in, the, in the depths of this forest. And generally it, it worked from morning to around uh, just before noon. And then it was taken down to the river where it bathed. And then it, it ate a few hundred pounds of you know, foliage for its lunch. And it was given the afternoon you know, to rest. And then would work again in, later in the afternoon. But lately, the work had fallen behind, and, and the boss of the job was working the elephant, you know, past noon. And this went on for like a week. And at a certain point, the elephant just had had enough. And so it just it, it pulled up the stake that was, you know, um, that the chain was tied to. And then the elephant systematically broke everything it had built that past week. Just tore down the building. And then it was running, you know, who knows where, maybe to the river, but it was just running away. And only when it again felt that reconnection with the Mahout did, did it calm down. Rage. Rage is a cry for help. You know, it's a call for validation and recognition. The elephant had been betrayed. It's a very social animal uh, and has very deep relationships in its own society uh, and, and often with the human one as well. Uh, being betrayed, you know, was like a message that it was unworthy and a, and a broken trust. So that was, that was the rage and that was the fierceness of the elephant displayed. So thereafter, the elephant stopped work at 11 <laughs> and was given its bath and all it wanted to eat, you know, for the rest of the day. It's an invaluable way to understand some of the enfolded karmic knots that we all have be it rage, be it anger, be it betrayal, be it the feeling of being unseen or unrecognized, and therefore understand why we might have these abilities to resist feeling feelings. And, uh, and um, you know, having not been taught from an early age what is compassion and how to feel it, and the wisdom of compassion, uh, and what it means to have trust be broken, you know, to be betrayed, and what it means to, you know, go from maybe having the feeling of being validated and seen and recognized to invalidation, uh, and and get the message that we're, we're not worthy, you know, of being listened to, and so forth. It's really quite understandable why we have these layers of resistance, many layers of resistance. And we'll use aversion that way, we'll use fear, we'll use our intellect, and we'll use numbing out, all as ways of 
you know, protecting ourselves uh, and and rage as well. So we reach we reach depths, and that's what metta and karuna, the other Brahma viharas, are able to do. They, they start to kind of build this surround first of an external field of safety, feeling more protected. And then that begins to be internalized. It just begins to feel safe enough maybe for a little while to feel feelings. We may not even know what they are. We just know there's emotion there. No name for it. Or another emotion. Maybe a few emotions. And maybe we only feel it at first through the physical sensation. You know, of churning and moving and pushing and pressure and tension and heat and tightness. And that's enough. And that's actually all we ever really need to know. We, we never ever really need to know the words or the story. It can stay on that pure felt sense level. This is really important because it's the difference between what it means to feel something real, you know, the, the the felt sense, touching something from within it, without the words, which can easily distance the awareness from feeling the feeling. From what's real, from what is just a mask, and, and all the ways we mask feelings. You know, to think about rage, or to think about fear, or to think about joy that starts to, you know, arise and emerge from us, is not the joy, and is not the rage, is not the fear. And no amount of thinking about it will ever restore it, you know, in that, in that flowing stillness of our heart-mind. So we have to understand the layers of resistance. We have to understand why they're there. We have to understand, you know, the feeling of wanting to break loose of our chain, chains chains and feelings of betrayal you have to understand our flight you know to get to some place that's safe where we feel some validation we have to understand all of that and internalize that that protective container before just sometimes a few moments of feeling these deep karmic knots can happen. Feeling a betrayal moment, feeling a deep fear or rage moment, feeling an old joy or zest or um, inside peaceful feeling, you know, that wants to come out, that wants to emerge. We have to understand that. It's the difference between, you know, a felt sense is just imagine running your fingers over stone on the beach, or over sand, or over our skin. That very real visceral feeling, as opposed to thinking about the stone, or the sand, or the skin. So thinking about something isn't real. That's not, what we, that's not what's meant when we talk about felt sense, or, or touching reality with, with awareness. Reality is something that is very viscerally experienced. Textures like hard and soft and flowing and, and, 
and firmness and pressure and heat. Not feeling something is this, you know, when we talk about, um, when we talk about, abstractly talk about feelings or our story about what might have happened to us or who we think we are, who we want to be. And sometimes that may very well be useful in initiating a connection, but we have to let awareness be born within the body, within the body of feelings, to to let the Dhamma intelligence, the metta, restore that sense of connection. You know, to to um, recohere what's been fragmented or what's been shattered. And we've all been shattered in various ways. We've all been betrayed in various ways. So it's a line, you know, it's a curve. It's an arc of development, this metta, and requires so much patience. The Buddha once said, um, there's no difference between practicing metta and practicing patience. You know, so like, we just, we learn to lean back in the moment. And we, we touch a feeling, we learn the skill of, and, uh, of being able to modulate getting close to and touching something that powerful, powerfully painful or powerfully pleasant, and the skill of retreat, backing off. Close and back off. Close and back off. And it's, it's only in that modulation, you know, that we, that we start to regain that faith, that confidence, that trust. And we, just, and we let in more that, um, that Dhamma intelligence, let it carry let it begin to take over our practice. Michelle last night was talking about these meditative uh, qualities of connection and sustaining uh, and uh, peaceful abiding and um, interest and one-pointedness. We actually have them all the time. And without them, we couldn't carry on uh, a thinking process or a conversation. You know, the, these qualities that Michelle mentioned last night of ritaka, it's w- without having a connective awareness, an initial application of awareness, we, we couldn't have a sequence of two thoughts in a row or carry on a conversation beyond one or two words. So we already have these skills. And the sustaining awareness, the immersion into experience is what keeps it coherent, keeps it a you know, thought process going or a conversation or a physical activity going. And there has to be some level of interest, the PT, Michelle mentioned last night. Without PT or interest, you know... We'll lose a train of thought, we'll lose the conversation, we'll lose the, whatever we're doing with our bodies. And a certain degree of, of ease or contentment, sukha, is every day. And every time we have thoughts and have carry on speech or have an activity, there's some degree of that ease. Otherwise, we're too fractured and anxious to do anything with our thinking mind or our speaking voice or our bodies. And there's always some degree of that 
one-pointedness, stability of mind, ekagata. So we all have that. When we meditate, these five factors become charged and they become very special, uh, like currents. And they're called jhanic factors then. When we meditate, Vitaka becomes such an important force in the mind that it's connecting moment to moment. Last night, Michelle was saying it's connecting with with the metta element or our metta subject or the phrase. It's because of its its continuous moment to moment connecting nature that Vitaka overcomes one of our major obstacles. And that's sloth or torpor, sleepiness, mental lethargy, no energy, innervation. So Vitaka is that jhanic factor that invigorates the mind, sort of burns away the lethargy, that level of resistance. And we, we use lethargy a lot as a defense against feeling. It's one of the ways that we check out. We use this, these tinamida, that's sloth and torpor, are just ways of either the mind drifting and being dreamy or being spacey, that's the, the tina or uh, sloth. And mita in the Pali is uh, it's like a fire being covered with ashes, so being smothered. It's when we kind of go unconscious. It's like a spiritual slumber. So sloth and torpor, which is one of the five major um, obstacles to calm and insight in meditation, is overcome by this patient spirit of repetition, vitaka, again and again connecting with whatever, the moment. Essentially, it's reconnecting with the present. But if we're practicing metta, it's connecting again and again with the metta. If we're practicing vipassana, it's connecting again and again with whatever experience is being felt in that moment through the body and senses. And the vichara, is the, is the constancy. You know, Michelle called it a, a sustaining awareness. It's the ability of awareness um, to immerse, kind of sink in to the flow of metta, to the continuity of whatever we're experiencing in the present. And it's that constancy that overcomes another great resistance. One, one of the most powerful obstacles and ways of resisting feeling our experience that there is, and that's doubt. The hindrance of doubt. Sort of a chronic indecisiveness. Our doubt in our ability. Our doubt that there's a path to light and liberation. Doubt paralyzes the practice. You know, it causes us to lose Faith and confidence and trust in Dhamma intelligence and metta, you know, the coherence of metta to reconnect our fragmented psyche, hearts. So, uchara is that patient reapplication. You know, Michelle used the example of the uchara being the striking of the bell, and then uchara is the, the sort of the rippling sounds that keep going out, keep rippling out. That's like 
our awareness keeps rippling, sinking in, like pouring water into sand, keeps going into the felt sense of our feelings, letting the metta saturate, you know, or basking, or abiding. All these terms we've been using to kind of keep us connected and sustained in the moment. So we, we chara by again and again feeling the feelings or staying with the metta. It's, it will transform that doubt, that indecision, that, dis, that distracted mind that doesn't trust and turn it into confidence. And piti starts from interest to this almost reverent awe, you know, joyous interest, it's called. Like, sometimes it just becomes phenomenal just to start to see things not through our memory or our brain or our thoughts or our judgments or interpretation, but the immediacy of, of you know, of, of metta suddenly opening a great new domain in our body and our senses and our mind is a wondrous thing. And that's the meaning of piti. Joyous interest, rapture, bliss. Sometimes we experience it. Um, and all these are felt in the body. Utaka, vichara, at first is more difficult. They, they feel more cerebral because they're close to thought, right? They help sustain and uh, connect and sustain when we do think. So when we start using it more on a kind of um, kinesthetic level, kind of to stay with felt experience moment to moment, we'll get to know them in a very different way. Whereas PT, you know, it's easy to feel the, the body tingling and, and it's felt in the beginning often as like goosebumps, you know, shiver up the spine, hair in the back of the neck, slight tingly vibration. And uh, and then it it can sort of mature into a like a sudden lightning like jolt of joy, which which strangely isn't always pleasant. The other day in the question, you know, someone was talking about this intense energy, like a knot in their back, and it, it held their interest very much, but it wasn't particularly pleasant to experience. It's still piti. <laughs> it's still piti because, um, you know, at an early, at an early tender stage, piti is just connecting us with things that are really there and happening in the body. Uh, and so a karmic knot isn't necessarily going to feel pleasant, but it can really hold our interest and behind every karmic knot, when it sort of opens or untangles, is a very liberating moment, often a release of this joy and enthusiasm we may not have felt since we were a small kid, small child, you know, just playing in the, in the froth of the foam of surf on the beach or something like that, that kind of feeling. So from goosebumps to a kind of lightning moment, flash of joy, 
our rapture, to um, to um, a showering, feeling like you're under a, a warm waterfall, and I just this wash of very pleasant feeling, and it's still keeping the mind intensely interested. Uh, and so by now, we might be able to understand how PT overcomes feelings of ill will, fear, resentment, anger. And it grows still more from showering, it becomes uplifting. Sometimes it feels like your body is just by itself straightening, or the spine's becoming, you know, like being pulled by a string from the heavens. Or you feel so light that you're, you could be floating on clouds, or your body feels like clouds. And then at its, at its peak, as if it's a sense of this suffusion, this cycling, this wash of rapture or joy through the body. And that's, those are moments where the, that resistance of ill will or anger or fear or resentment, irritation, completely drops away. And it's a very connected moment. And now all of these qualities are working simultaneously and together, but they're all helping strengthen each other. So the more, the more that spirit of repetition of again and again connecting becomes smoother and smoother, then the more there's the immersion, you know, the sustaining meta-awareness or mindfulness. And the more there's that sustaining, the more interest and, you know, almost like rapturous or rapt interest in what's happening. Kind of knowing the body from the first time, it's as if the cells of our body suddenly have eyes and fingers and scent and ears, and it's knowing ourselves in a very, very different way than thinking about ourselves. And, and alongside these three is, is the sukha Michelle mentioned last night, which is growing ease and moments of profound contentment, like even when the body feels still knotted and disturbed and, uh, and there's difficult emotions coming up, that there still can be this sense, this surround of comfort, you know, sukha, the deep spiritual kind of happiness. It doesn't depend on the comfort disappearing. It doesn't depend on feeling pleasure. So even with pain, we have we can have this sense of ease in sukha. Sukha overcomes the hindrance of restlessness, anxiety, and so these these are hindrances that are always going to be experienced, and we all have learned how to use them, you know, not to feel feelings. So restlessness and worry, anxiousness. Sometimes we, we live with that nearly constantly in our lives or parts of our lives. Uh, and it's, it's a great way uh, not to feel what's happening, you know, not to touch an emotion as and feel it as it really is. So this 
soothing nature of sukha. Suddenly feel this ease of body and ease of, of heart, mind. Releases the distress, the anxiety, the restlessness. The ekagata, are usually called one-pointedness. It's as if we we feel all these different streams of our of our heart, mind, of our body sensations suddenly collect, you know, in this body of water, a lake. So it's all where it's like when the water stops, when the when it's all has flown in to this lake or pond and it's and it's cohered, it's still, it's collected, it's become one. This this oneness. It it doesn't it doesn't mean that there's still not, you know, disturbing forces that arise, but it just means that our awareness stays more or less intact, more or less one pointed or collected, gathered together so we can feel it. We can feel what's there. So imagine what it's like when when all these these meditative forces called jhanic factors are working together. You know, a connected awareness, a sustaining, fluid awareness, this rapt interest, no matter what's happening, just taking a real interest in what's being felt or seen or heard, and a certain ease overcoming the body and mind, even even with a still discomfort, when we feel a karmic knot of rage, you know, still, okay, that's there. And then take, in, take um, this felt sense, you know, plant this ease or, or contentment around what's going on. It can happen together. And then the one-pointedness of mind, where the mind's not being scattered or fractured, so it can just stay with what's happening. This is the meditative development of stillness. Those three lines of development, metta, and then along with that, the, the meditative mind that restores our natural stillness, and and then the wisdom that, that grows, that starts to see things for what they really are without judging it, without resisting, without identifying. If we feel a block, we feel a numbness. If we have one of those huge river rocks that just don't seem to go away, there's just an understanding. Well, that's there. That's, that's what is. You don't need it to go away. You don't need it to change. You can just be as it is. So later on in in um, in Chana's back to the chariot driver who became a monk. Um, over the life of the Buddha, he continued to be trouble all the time. And and in addition to his 
the rules that came from his evasive nature and his vexatious nature. And uh, it's said that once he was he was uh, accepted near a village, you know, as a residing monk, and given some land and materials to build a house. So he did. Uh, and actually, the villagers helped him do it. And then they were finished, and he, he looked at it, and he had doubt about it, you know. Was that really going to be strong enough? And is that going to be enough shelter for me to, you know, do my practice? Uh, and so the more he thought about it, he thought, oh, I should put some more plaster on it. So he put more plaster and he looked at the roof and he thought, well, that's not going to be enough straw when it rains. So he put more straw. And then he thought again and he thought, oh, I need to put more plaster. So he put more plaster and he put more straw. And he kept doing that again and again until it collapsed. <laughs> his dwelling collapsed because of his doubt, because of his fear, and because of, you know, that wanting more mind. Um, because he didn't know any better, you know. It collapsed. And so then he, he, he trampled around the farmer's um, field there, gathering more straw, you know, to try and build another house. And it just caused havoc. And the whole village got upset. And then the order of monks heard about it. And again, the Buddha had to come. And then they made one of those really confounding rules, of which there's many, about, you know, how how to build a house <laughs> or how not to build a house and a rule against trampling in a farmer's, you know, crops. There's some really strange rules. His troubles weren't over, but... Um, In the meantime, the Buddha continued to send you know, his, his senior monks out and around uh, to, to share the Dhamma with people. Uh, Ananda who was his cousin and very close to him. Uh, and it was because of Ananda that we have most of these teachings because he had a photographic memory. You know, he he recounted most of the discourses of the Buddha after the Buddha passed away, so that they could be memorized. And, and as I've said, there's a 300, 400 year tradition, oral tradition first, before these were written down. The teachings were written down. So after he passed away, there was a a really important meeting where hundreds of enlightened monks and nuns were to gather and decide how to proceed after the demise of the Buddha. Uh, and it, the senior enlightened monks thought it was really important that Ananda be there because he, he knew more of the Buddha's teachings than anyone. But Ananda hadn't yet finished his practice. He was, he was pretty old by then, too. You know, the Buddha had died at 80, 
80 or 85, 80. And Ananda was not far behind. So he had a, he had a lot of doubts about being able to finish his practice and only one day to do it. The meeting was the next day. So it said he he practiced, you know, with all these jhanic factors in mind. Uh, walking meditation, for example, is really good to invigorate the mind for, you know, vitaka. So most of the night he did walking meditation and tried to, you know, arouse or charge these spiritual qualities of uh, applied or connected awareness, sustaining awareness, um, rapt interest, ease or contentment, and and the and the non-distracted, one-pointed mind. Uh, and he just wore himself out. It was near morning, and he said, "I've had it. I, I just I can't do it. Uh, I'm going to bed." So he went to lay down. And it said that as his feet lifted off the ground and before his head hit the pillow, he became fully enlightened. It was when he relaxed. You know, and why we sort of keep charging our practice, instructing ourselves with this ease, this sense of gentleness, this sense of deep relaxation. It's like resting between the thoughts, you know, between the sensations. It's when we're not looking that awakening happens. Like when we're not trying, when it's a more effortless effort, and and uh, these qualities suddenly become like you know the five um, strings of an instrument that make a perfect chord. You know, when you strum it. So we have poor Chana, and eventually, this man who started as a Buddha, as a Siddhartha's charioteer, and then became a monk, and was, you know, not a popular monk. Eventually, he 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 committed so many um, mistakes, you know, didn't follow the rules, or denied that there were rules. You know, there, there was a rule made that monks had to know the rules <laughs> because of him. He's the cause of more rule-making than any other monk. <laughs> so finally, it's the most extreme thing that can be done in the Buddhist order is to be ostracized. And he, he was ostracized. He got really lonely and really depressed. And everywhere he went, he tried to join another group of monks. And he traveled far from where he, they were in Kosambi, northeast India. He traveled a long ways, kept trying to be accepted here and there. Finally went to Saranath, back where the Buddha gave his first sermon near Varanasi in India. And... And he went to a group there, and at first, you know, they said, no, you know, we know who you are. <laughs> and, but by this time, he was, worn, he was pretty worn down, you know. And he really started to feel that 
have a sense for his offenses, you know, for his his mistakes and for and the price of not acknowledging them, of not having a felt sense of them. He started to feel that, and so this certain um, monastery and the monks around Sarna. This is long after the Buddha had died. Now felt that they felt that sincerity, and they took him in. And then again, for the first time, you know, he he committed himself to the practice, and he started to remember his relationship with the Buddha and why why he became a monk in the first place, and recalled his time as a charioteer and the and the four divine messengers of of um, being old and being sick and death. Uh, and the possibility of going beyond the way of the world. Uh, and he started to have really deep practice. And then the only one he could think of that he deeply trusted, other than the Buddha who had died, was Ananda. So he, he traveled all the way back to Kosambi, where Ananda was, you know, months away and walking. And Ananda saw him immediately, you know, how he had changed. And he gave him the teachings. Ananda now, being a fully enlightened being himself, gave him the teachings. And Chana practiced with sincerity, you know. And he felt this, not guilt, but this uh, like skillful remorse for all those years where he didn't allow himself to, to feel the pain, his own pain, you know, his own feelings. And to acknowledge, you know, the mistakes he made. He felt that, and everything fell away. One night, everything fell away, and the pure, full Dhamma awakened in him. And he was one of the, uh, one of the happy ones, as they call fully enlightened beings. So I'll close tonight with um, this one little part during the two years that my mom lived in our home. You know, we moved her into our home because uh, she wanted to die at home, and so I sold her house and made it. We made a special room for her, and. Um, and uh, when I was home, I'd be just down the hall with my door open so I could hear her. And our daughter, Chanja, was her caretaker for like, the first year. She took time off from university uh, to look after my, her grandma. And she was on the other end of the house with one of those, uh, like those baby machines that you can hear sounds. Uh, Huh? Monitor. Uh, but I actually heard my mom moving around first down the hall because my door was open, ajar. And so I heard her moving around in there. And she had, it's when she could still walk. And she had gotten up out of her hospital bed. She'd walked across the room uh, to where the, uh, the 
into in, in one room. It was a, her bed and bathroom. And so at the end of the room is the bathroom with a sink and a, and a wall mirror. So I walked in there, and she had made her way across the room with her stick. And she was looking in the mirror, and she thought it was a window. And I said, Mom, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I need to get that little girl in there through the window. Do you see the little girl? You know, the little, the school girl. I, I, I need to talk to her. I said, oh, where is she? And, you know, right there. She was looking at herself. I said, oh, I see. And by this time, Chandra had heard the sounds on the monitor, and she walked in and said, Tutu, you know, Hawaiian word for elder or grandparent, what are you doing? And my mom said, oh, I, I, need, to, I need to be with that little girl. Okay, Grandma. Okay, Tutu. We'll be with the little girl. But let's just sit down and talk about it. You know, so we walked back to the bed. And three of us sat down, and we just did a little review of who we were. You know, I was her son, uh, and 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 Chandra was my daughter and her granddaughter. And and then Chandra held up a mirror, a hand mirror, and said, "And this is you, Tutu." And my mom looked in the mirror. She said, "No, that's not me." That's an old lady. That's an old woman in there. And Chandra says, Tutu, that is you. She said, Really? That's me? I'm not that little girl? And Chandra said, No, Tutu, that's you. She said, Well, she's very old. And Chandra says, Yes. Yeah, Tutu, she's old. And my mom says, does everyone get old like that? And Chandra said, yes, Tutu, we all get old like that. And my mom said, oh, okay. Let's see where your awareness is. Where is it connecting? And where is it sustaining? What is it interested in? Are wrapped with? And can you feel that body? Contentment, ease with what's true, what's real, pleasant or unpleasant. You feel what it's like when the awareness is all gathered, not scattered. It's just resting in the moment. 